you have your Bible, and I hope you do this morning, turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. We're going to continue our study through the book of 1 Timothy, talking about how the correct doctrine in our life impacts how we live our life and our faith. Correct doctrine meets faith. When we get it right at the level of the Word of God, we get it right at the level of application. So just to recap, last week we started the first half of chapter 1. If you weren't with us last week or maybe you forgot, we'll just do a, a quick recap. Paul is writing to his son in the faith. In other words, his protege, a young man named Timothy, who is a leader in the church in Ephesus. And in this church that Timothy is helping lead, there are all sorts of distractions and and, uh, and difficulties that arise, not only from without, but also from within the church itself. And Paul is specifically addressing these false teachers within the church. Now, these false teachers were certainly teaching a different gospel, bad doctrine, but what seems to be a repetitive theme at the beginning of chapter 1 is that these leaders in the church were arrogantly teaching things they knew nothing about. They were teaching with authority when they didn't have the authority to teach. They were teaching on their own authority, their own opinions, what Paul says is vain discussions, as opposed to teaching on the truth of the Word of God. And so we we have Paul writing to Timothy saying, we've got to get the doctrine right. Paul begins by talking about the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And really the theme of this letter is we've got to get the doctrine right so that our faith is right because we have a future hope that God makes everything right. So hope is what we always tie it back to. But why do we do the things Paul is writing in this letter? Because there's a hope of an eternal life in Christ. Why do we try to get things right now? Because we have a hope of an eternal life in Christ. And so we're going to continue looking this morning. Last week we looked at the problem, the struggle that the church was having. This morning we're going to look at Paul's example of how the correct doctrine infiltrated his heart and changed his faith and his life. And Paul's going to give his testimony in these chapters this morning. And he's going to talk about the different life he now has in Christ. We're going to be reading 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and I hope you'll read along with me, either follow along on the screen or in your own copy of God's Word. And we'll take this just as we did last week, just a few verses at a time, and stop and, and discuss what Paul is, is writing to Timothy and what the Word of God is speaking to us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul continues to write, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am Foremost. And can I tell you, you can't read that and just sit quietly and look at me and do that. I'm going to read that last verse again, and I want everybody to shout a hearty amen. Because this, Paul says, is a trustworthy saying. Let me read that again, and I'm going to give you a chance to decide whether that excites you or not. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
That is an amen verse if there ever was one. I know we're, we're reading this 2,000 years removed from its original writing, but Paul is pouring his heart out in his testimony here. He begins by saying, God appointed me faithful. God appointed me in my faithfulness. Now, what Paul is not saying is God looked down and saw that I was being faithful, and so he called me to salvation. That's actually the opposite of what he's saying here. We read that when he says he appointed me faithful, and we immediately think, well, of course he did. Paul is a super missionary. God saw something in Paul. God must have seen something in Paul to draw God to Paul. Paul says, no, he is the one who made me faithful. Because I was unfaithful. There was nothing about me that God looked at and said, that man right there, he's going to be my voice to the early church. But Paul says, it is God himself who appointed me faithful in verse 12. And then Paul gives his, his history and his testimony. He gives us three characteristics to remind us he was not someone that God would have found faithful. Listen to the descriptions he gives to himself. First, he says, I was a blasphemer. This is not a light word, okay? This is one that, that maybe we've heard in churches before, and we go, oh yeah, that's bad. No, blasphemer is, is the worst sin you can commit because it is a sin directly hating and against God himself. You know, there are some who would teach and believe, and we'll talk about this very briefly, that blaspheming is a, is a sin that is unforgivable and that will not allow you into heaven. There's a verse that Jesus talks about where he says, except uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That, that's the one that, that will get you and keep you from the kingdom of God. And so we get this idea of, of blaspheme being this, this sin that keeps us from ever being able to experience Christ. And I'm here to tell you that, that Paul is a living proof that Jesus Christ even forgives the worst of sins. But can I remind you, blaspheming is not a light sin. It, it's not something that we take lightly. It's literally shaking your fist at God, shaking your fist at Christ and saying, I hate you. That's what blaspheme is. Paul was a, a blasphemer. And then he says, I was a persecutor. In his hatred of Jesus Christ, he actually made it his life to go find other people who believed in Jesus Christ and persecute them. The earliest we find Paul is when he's standing watching the death of a Christian man named Stephen. And he's not throwing the rocks. It says he's holding everyone's coats so that they can have their arms loose so they can throw the rocks. He was like the supervisor. Let, let's not take this as a, an inactive participant. It's Paul going, guys, these are the instructions. Let me help you out with this. Let me enable you to kill this man. And Stephen was not the only one. We read in Acts that he went from place to place seeking Christians to arrest them, and in his mind, to put them to death, a persecutor of Jesus Christ. In Paul's history, he says, I was an insolent opponent. <laughs> I love the adjectives that he uses here. I wasn't just against God. I was an insolent opponent. It's really a fancy way of saying, again, I hated him and would do anything I could to stop the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, what in that testimony screams that God says, I found him faithful and I drew him to me? None of it. As a matter of fact, all of that screams, this man is deserving of eternal separation in hell. Paul says, this is my history, but God appointed me faithful. Not because of my actions. My actions were garbage. 
But because of God's actions, he found me faithful. Verses 14 and 15. Paul says, this is one of four times in the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, uh, five times, I'm sorry, one of five times in the pastoral letters. He says, this is a trustworthy statement. One of only two times that he says, this is deserving of full acceptance. In other words, nothing that I'm about to say can be rejected. And he gives us a phrase that most likely was, was a phrase repeated in Christian churches, almost like a, uh, a recitation in their worship. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world for the purpose of saving sinners. And Paul adds, of whom I am the foremost. This word foremost is, is literally the word chief, like captain or commander. There were no sinners worse than Paul. I don't think that he's speaking in hyperbole here. I don't think that he's saying, just like other people, I'm really bad. I think we can take on authority of God's word that there has never been a sinner in the history of the world worse than an unsaved Paul, and I believe that. Nobody can claim they're worse off. But somebody's committed murder, so did Paul. Somebody blaspheme against God himself, so did Paul. There is not a person who has walked this earth that is deeper in their sin than a lost unsaved Paul. It's an example to us then that there is not a person in this room that can claim God does not have the power to save me. He continues on in verse 16 to give his testimony. In verse 16 he says, I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul says, I received mercy for this purpose, this specific purpose, I received mercy so that other people could see me as an example, so that nobody can say, God can't save me. He repeats, I am the, the foremost, I'm the worst, I'm the chief of the sinners. And then he says, I'm an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I love that Paul stops and gives his testimony here because we remember that in the church in Ephesus, there are all of these people who are, are blaspheming, who are teaching another gospel, people who should know better, who are following the path of the world and the path of pride as opposed to following Jesus Christ. And Paul, in his mind, even here, we're going to continue to read this, in his mind, even here, doesn't have this attitude of, so be done with them. But it's a reminder that Jesus Christ, no matter where you're at, can save and heal and forgive. Paul's testimony is an example of God's infinite mercy. You cannot outsin God's mercy. You can't do it. I don't encourage you to try. <laughs> but no matter where you're at, no matter what you have done, God's grace and mercy are greater. That, that is a statement that is trustworthy and full, uh, worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save you and me. Some of you in here are scratching your head and going, Paul sounds pretty bad, but if you knew 
me in my teenage years or my 20s. I, I don't need to know you in your teenage years and your 20s. This, this isn't a church that practices confessional. Uh, by the way, I don't think that's a biblical practice that you need to come and confess to a pastor. Um, it is a church that encourages you to confess sins to one another. But your past is your past. And if, quite honestly, I don't want to hear about your wild nights as a 23-year-old. I just, I'd rather not, okay? You can keep that to yourself. Some of you are going, if you'd have known the things that I did and where I was, some of you guys are even, quite honestly, looking back at your history and going, I think I'm worse than Paul. The, the, the truth is, you were as bad as Paul. Can, can, I, can I just, I love you guys, can I be honest with you? Not one of you was a worse sinner than Paul, but one, not one of you was a better sinner than Paul either. Every single one of us can look at the example of the salvation of Paul and say there's infinite mercy. There's no sin you've committed that cannot be forgiven. And there's, there's nothing you have done that God does not desire to overcome. This causes Paul to break out in praise. In verse 17, we have what is called a doxology. There's actually several of them in 1 Timothy. Uh, doxology literally is just a, a song or a poem praising God for who he is. So there's an old hymn that's called the doxology. It's just about, this is who you are, God, and we praise you for it. Paul busts out after giving his testimony in verse 17. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, uh, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's salvation forces him to bust out in praise. That's why when we read a verse that says Jesus Christ came to save sinners, if we really read that and understand the gravity of it, we can't keep our mouth shut. We got to say, amen, this is amazing. Paul is writing this and he's going, stop for just a second. I got more things to tell you, Timothy, but to the king of ages, that is the one forever and ever and ever, immortal, can never go away, invisible, one we can't see, but we do see in the person of Christ, the only God, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Can I tell you, this doxology is a reminder of why it is important for you and I to recall our testimony. Some of you go, my testimony is not that powerful. I was saved when I was six or eight or ten. I was a child, and, and it just was, I naturally grew up in church. And By the way, I've got a testimony similar to that. I was saved when I was ten. Some of you all have more dramatic testimonies and you feel like there's some power behind them. God has completely transformed and changed your life. I don't care if you have a testimony from when you were a child or a testimony from a week ago. It's important that we look back and recall, how did God save me? Just writing these words, Paul is reminded about what a horrible, sinful person he was. But the purpose of Jesus' coming was salvation. The reason why we're to recall our testimony is because it forces us to break out in praise. You ought to be able to share your testimony briefly with anybody at any time. As a matter of fact, if you can't do that this morning, let me encourage you. Just come up with a, a three-phrase sentence or maybe three sentences. Just something really simple. Before Christ, I was, and characterize yourself. But Jesus Christ, and talk about how you got saved. And since that time, God has, and talk about how God has changed you. Three sentences, three phrases, jot them down and be ready to share that. And not only be ready to share that, intentionally share that with people. Because the more you do that, the more you're going to break out in a doxology of praise. God, you're amazing. You did that for me. I know I was 10, but it's easy for me to forget the transformation 
that took place. I know it was just last week, but Lord, I just want to never forget your goodness to me. It's important that you recall your testimony, and it's important that you share it. By the way, we get so nervous sharing our faith, sharing our testimony, we kind of fumble through it. Well, you know, this verse says that we're sinners, and we got to, uh, you know, uh, trust Jesus and Savior and Lord or something, and, and God will change you. And we come across so timid and nervous. And can I tell you, sharing your faith can make you nervous. So share your testimony. Tell what God has done for you. Just start there. And if you just share your testimony and you're not so concerned with, did I get the verse right or the wording right? If you just said, this is what God did in my life, what people are going to see is not that you're fumbling around. They're going to see you go, holy smokes, give me a second because I forgot how amazing this is. I'll get back with you, but let me just, God, to only God, immortal, invisible, the God of all ages, praise God. Okay, let me finish my story here. People are going to look and go, wow, this is, this is something to them. These aren't just words. This is meaningful life change. Paul busts out with his testimony, and it forces him to praise. Then Paul brings it back to where we were last week, a reminder that the reason he's giving his testimony as an example is because there's a charge that comes out of this application of salvation. This is what I'll call the beginning of Paul's war speech. There's a lot of, of battle language really all through the New Testament, in particular in these verses. Paul is saying, this is a charge, a command, this is a battle that we go to fight. And so verses 18 through 20 say, out of this salvation, let us remind ourselves where we were and where we're going. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. This is a war language holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's war speech here begins with, I give you this charge. This charge was a military phrase of a command from a general. I'm charging you, commanding you, Put your uniform on and go to war. We know this from the context because then Paul ties in this idea of warfare. This is not a light, okay, live your life and hope things go well. Paul says, in light of this gospel, you're in the midst of a battle and a fight and a war. You better be ready. I'm charging you and I'm commanding you. This charge I give you to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight, to battle. We tend to think that the Christian faith and the Christian life is trust Jesus and you know peace and comfort and everything goes well. Now, I don't know where you get that when you read the New Testament. The peace part, yes, but you only experience peace when there's chaos around you, right? That's the, that's the time that you go, wow, God has done something because the chaos is here and I'm okay. As you read through the whole New Testament, what you find is war talk. This is a battle, this is a fight against enemies that are coming against you, the world is going to hate you. You're going to have to stand firm. This is, this is serious battle. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, he literally says, you've got to put on some armor because you're fighting a fight. You need a helmet and a breastplate. You need a belt with your tools. You need a, a weapon and a sword. Paul is saying, if you live the Christian life, 
If you truly and genuinely have experienced transformation the way I have, the fight is coming, and it's coming to you. And Timothy, let me remind you, the fight's around you. There's people right now that are fighting against you from within the church in Ephesus. So let me charge you to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare. How do you do that? How do you fight well? Two things in verse 19. He says, hold on to the faith and keep a good or a clear conscience. Hold on to your, your faith that you received. Recall your testimony. Remember that God has saved you out of, out of a rebellion against him and changed your life. Hold on to that faith and, and share that testimony with yourself and with others so that you can remember that God is good in his saving of you. And have a good conscience. Salvation ought to change your actions so that you now have a good and a clear conscience before God. That, that doesn't mean you don't ever do anything wrong. As a matter of fact, you're going to do something wrong, but salvation in Christ says even the sins you commit now are already forgiven. Confess them and move on. Don't dwell on them. Do what you know is right, correct what you know is wrong, and have a good and a clear conscience. How do you fight a good fight? You trust in God for salvation and trust in Him to lead the rest of your life. Paul then says in verse 19 that having rejected uh, Christian living, there are some who make a shipwreck of their faith. This is the idea that, that they've gone into battle on a ship, this battleship, but they've not followed the commander to lead them. And they've ended up wrecked somewhere, not accomplishing what God called them to accomplish. There, there's seemingly no way out. When you're shipwrecked, you can't escape. You're just stuck there. I think it's very fitting that Paul would write about a, a shipwreck because he understood, and, and Timothy most likely understood what it meant to be shipwrecked. There was a, a time in Acts where they were traveling and he actually crashes onto an island and is stuck there for a period of time. And he feels like there's no way out. You're just going to die here on this island because there's no cell phone service. Oh, wait, first century, no cell phones, right? You can't get a hold of anybody. Nobody knows you're missing. And if they did know you're missing, they don't know what island the storm has blown you to. You're just here on this island to die. And, and while they're there on this island, there feels like there's no hope and there's no escape. But I think Paul uses the shipwreck language to remind us that just as God saved him from that shipwreck, a boat did come. They were able to escape the island. The shipwreck that occurs in our lives doesn't have to be the end story. God is ready to pick you up again. He then names a couple of names Hymenaeus and Alexander. We're not really told the specifics of their sin. We hear these names a couple of times in the New Testament. We don't even know if they're the same people or not. Uh, but, but they come up several times, and it's always in a negative light. And Paul here uses some pretty strong language. He says, these two men we have handed over to Satan. <laughs> Remember earlier when I told you that God can save anybody and there's nobody that is beyond his mercy? You read a verse like this, and immediately your mind goes, except for maybe Hymenaeus and Alexander, right? We're giving them over to Satan. Sounds pretty strong and pretty bold. And quite honestly, there are times we read Scripture and it's pretty uncomfortable. Can you imagine us having a business meeting and going, okay, we're bringing forth uh, these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Um, you know the sins that they've committed. No need to repeat all of those. Let's take a vote to see if we want to hand them over to Satan. All in favor, say aye. Like, can you imagine that going down at a business meeting? Like, that would be the worst business meeting ever. 
This is what Paul says. We, we're giving them over. You need to give them over to Satan. I've given them over. You give them over to Satan. Now, there's really two meanings that this can mean. One is, maybe he means literally, right? Give them over. There's no hope for them any longer. They belong to the enemy, and we've just given up. That's one interpretation, and it's an interpretation I think that's wrong. I think more likely the interpretation that's appropriate is an understanding that the church in Ephesus, the true church, was a place where God was moving and working. It was the, the spirit and the, the arena of God. Within the church is where we can rightly say we are following what God calls us to do. But out in the world, that's the sphere of Satan. We're called to go in there. We're called to bring as many as we can to the kingdom of God. Inside the church is the arena of God. Outside is the arena of the enemy. And I think what Paul is saying here is it's time for church discipline on these two men. They need to be sent out from the arena of God. There's a time to say, if you want to follow the world, then we're giving you to the world. But we see immediately that Paul is not making this a permanent punishment. The goal is not to get rid of them from the church. Why is Paul handing them over? Why is Paul saying, practice discipline? Why is God saying, or Paul saying, put them out of the church? That last phrase, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This action is corrective in nature. It's not punitive. It's not a punishment. Paul's not saying they're getting what they deserve. Paul's saying if they desire the world, maybe they'll be like the prodigal son. They'll experience the world and see their need to come home. If that's where they want to be, let them be there and hope and pray that they would see the error in their sinfulness and that they would return and learn not to blaspheme. Church discipline always aims for reconciliation. It always aims for people to not only experience the weight of their sin and the guilt, but more importantly, to experience that infinite mercy that Paul experienced in his salvation. You see, our goal is always, in every circumstance, in every situation, our goal is always to share the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ with others. Period. And those who are outside the church, we want them to know that God loves them. And there's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Those who are fighting within the church and causing divisiveness, people like Hymenius and Alexander, those we, we sometimes have to have tough conversations with. But our goal, our heart, is that we know infinite mercy and grace from God. That when they come and say, I want your forgiveness that we would say Christ has already forgiven you and we do too. As Paul is writing to Timothy, these verses have some harsh phrases for some, some really wicked people in the church. But we're reminded over and over again that there is no sin that God's mercy and grace cannot cover. This morning as we think of Paul's example and hear his testimony, we're reminded of the weight of our own sin. If you're not a believer in Christ, maybe you need a testimony like Paul's testimony. Maybe you've never put that second of the, the three statements into practice. Before Christ, I was, but I don't have a, this is what Christ did for me. Maybe this morning, even as a believer, as a Christian sitting here in our sanctuary, watching downstairs or online, maybe this morning you're, you're examining your own life and going, I'm Hymenius and Alexander, and I, I need correction. I need forgiveness. 
I need to repent. Know that the salvation you experienced, however long ago your salvation was, still offers forgiveness today. This morning, the goal of Paul's writing and the goal of this message and the goal of the Word of God is for us to know grace and mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm grateful and I'm thankful that no matter what stage we're at, no matter where our sin lies, that you are a merciful God and you forgive. Father, this morning as we we read your word, remind us of your infinite mercy. When I think about how you've saved my own sin, how you've forgiven my own sin, Lord, how you've changed me from where I was and where I am now, Father, I praise you for being a God who is merciful and gracious, the only God who can do those things. Father, I confess now to you that I still struggle with sin. I beg and plead for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. Father, we thank you for your word and for the example of Paul. It's in your name we pray. Amen.